So hello and welcome to Talking Moves, a podcast from Greenwich Dance where dance artists come together to talk about their work and practice, the things that matter and the issues which move them. I'm Melanie Precious and in this episode I'll be talking to two artists about money matters. Money is always an awkward thing to talk about, at least it seems that way. And when what we do is what we love, it can feel even harder. And yet, by the same token, it can also be very insulting to have our worth undervalued. This isn't just a sector thing. We're often brought up to be reluctant to talk about money or how amazing we think we are. But is this helpful as we navigate our way within a business where we're constantly having to put a price tag on either ourselves, consultancy or advice perhaps, or the artistic work we make? So today, to unpick all of this, I have Luke Cope, dramaturg and founder of the Centre for Applied Dramaturgy, and Gina for Jean Charles, Artistic and Movement Director, Creative Consultant, and importantly for this podcast, a member of the Freelance Task Force. Thank you both for being here. So, first things first, why is money so hard to talk about, Gina for? Um, I think I'm probably going to answer the question the other way around by saying I've learned not to talk about money because I find that as an artist, no matter how much I try to get comfortable. It's always quite an uncomfortable place. I seem to have more success when someone talks about money on my behalf. So as much as possible, if I can, and when I have project coordinators or a producer, we will discuss how much this project is worth, but then I will get someone else to talk about it. Now, if that's not possible, because I don't always have the luxury of having a project coordinator, the next best thing is to put it in writing. And I find that so much more comfortable than doing it in terms of a conversation. So putting it in writing feels a bit more neutral. Dear so-and-so, this is how much it's going to cost. And this is why, if I need to say that, and then send the email and then fingers crossed. Just puts a bit of distance between you and the thing. Yes. How about you, Lou? Well, I think in answer to your question, why do we find money hard to talk about? I think it's something to do with the reason we go into this industry in the first place is because of our love of it and our belief in it and our passion for it and our belief in the contribution we hope we can make to the whole sector. We don't go into it for money. And I think we find that difficult to not talk about passion, but to talk about cold, hard cash. And I think probably fair yeah. to say that if you go into investment banking for example it's kind of assumed you do go into it for the cold hard cash and so therefore it's easier to talk about where sometimes I feel like if I'm pushing for money I feel like I'm somehow devaluing the art or de- devaluing my own love of it and my belief in somebody but actually of course it's not about that it's about survival but I think we find it hard to talk yeah. about and also because we feel replaceable you know we're always told that well if you don't want it there's hundreds of others that do and so I think that if, if I'm going to start asking for more money, then, you know, I'm going to be chased out. And so I think those, for me, are the reasons why we just sort of try to steer clear of it. Fearful. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? I do remember, you know, as a younger artist, somebody saying to me, never say what you're being paid because someone will immediately value you at that level and put you in that box. It's just, you sort of grow up with this fear of, of talking about it or letting slip or being transparent mm. about it. And that's an interesting point that you make there, Lou, about it's less transactional for us because our heart is so wrapped up in it. It's less about black or white, although maybe you know maybe it should be maybe it shouldn't be let's unpick that some more so both of you are independent and freelance both of you have numerous saleable skills which you use to make your living and I wondered if you'd tell us a little bit about you and what you offer so what would somebody buy you in to do Jennifer good question as 
all artists, we're always trying to think about what is really different about us, what makes us unique. And I think that's a question, you asked the question, and it's a question that is constantly in my head. I'm always thinking about it. So if you buy Gina for services, what do you get that's different? I think it's just because of who I am and the values I bring to the work that I do, my own personal values, and I carry that wherever I go. And and in terms of my work, it's the yeah, it's the thing that I try to ensure is always part of what I'm doing, the conversations I'm having, the value I put on other people, whatever position I'm in, I want to have a conversation on an equal level. And it's about um, I think when you buy Jennifer, you get someone who listens to others, mm. allows the other creative voices into a space in a project and really happy to kind of stand back and allow things to really grow and unfold. I'm interested yeah. how you've answered that, because I kind of expect you to say you could get me as a choreographer, mm-hmm. you could get me as a teacher. But actually what we could buy Gina for for is something very different to that. And I suppose how that plays out, all those values you talked about might play out in those other more specific roles. Mm. But you've intentionally almost removed yourself from those titles. From those very specific yeah. things, those titles mm-hmm. and, and and are looking at the very bigger picture. And Lou, what can we get you for? So the way I look at it really is that all I have for sale is my time. And if you want to buy it, you can have it. And yes, I hope I bring all my values and all my experience and and knowledge into that. But actually, I think I have it slightly easier than some other artists in that I'm a dramaturg and that's all I do. So it's quite clear what my offer is. I think I'm a facilitator as well, but the, the two kind of merge together. And so if people want to investigate their own practice or if they want some help developing their own uh, ideas or their shows or whatever then they might bring me in and yes in terms of values it's my love and my thoughtfulness and my care and you know a hundred years of experience doing this but really all I've got is so many hours per day outside of that there is nothing so that's how I think of it is, is how much of my time would you like and if you get my time I'll give you everything I've got within that time. That is really interesting. So that's your metric, actually. Those are your little measuring blocks, the bits that you're you're selling as your time and what you fill those with. It's whatever that person needs of you, but it's your full attention they're getting and the values that you're Mm. talking about. So that kind of leads me really nicely into this next question, which is about in terms of financial sustainability and never before has that been thrown to the fore as it has done in this last year. How important is the portfolio career model to how you've been able to keep you and your families alive and well? And I wondered whether you could give us an example of where perhaps you've used one skill set as a market for another has disappeared. Now, you've just said, Lou, that you only have one skill, and I'm not sure that's true. I think you've built quite a big and wide ranging business around yourself. But I also love your clarity of thinking in terms of those metrics but would you say that that flexibility has helped you through this tough time being able to offer one thing or another yeah there's a few things there I think so when Covid all kicked off I genuinely thought okay well that was fun I had a nice career it's over I'm not going to work again because it just felt I felt so such like a hideously privileged position and I lost all my work everything stopped for a while and I was thinking as a woman of a certain age how can I be this age and not have a job how have I let that happen it's a ridiculous 
idea that I'm freelance at this point in my life. And I was really, really envious of all the people that had jobs. And then, of course, time passed and we saw people losing their jobs and people being furloughed. And that was all its own unique horror. And I realized, ah, I've got a whole different set of skills, which is I've only ever been freelance. I've always had 20, 30 jobs on at once, you know, if I'm lucky. And I'm flexible resilient. I'm able to work from home. I always have worked online. And so after the period of quiet, I started to just thank my lucky stars that I had that flexibility. And also, you know, I thought, what the hell can I do with myself? So I set up my own podcast, still available now, downtime. Um, and very beautiful. It got me through lockdown 1.0. So I realized that that was a way of me using my skills and my passions and my interests just to get myself through the day. But then the other thing that's happened is I've got international work that I would never have gotten otherwise if it weren't for COVID. So I'm, I've got two shows over opening in the Adelaide Dance Festival in March, which is purely because people suddenly decided it was okay to only have a relationship on Zoom. And so I think that the kind of flexibility and the digital nature of the work already set me up to survive this time without having to diversify too much. I've just kept doing what it is I do less but consistently, which I'm incredibly grateful for. I've weathered quite a lot of storms in my long career. And so I was eventually able to see this as one of those, I think. Interesting. And geography's played into that as well, opening those doors for you. Jennifer, how's it been for you? First of all, when lockdown happened, all my work just came to a pause because I work as a mass movement coordinator. So around that March period is when I start bringing teams together and thinking about the summer months and festivals. And of course, that was just not possible. I then decided to sort of reflect and just look at what did that really mean and look at myself in a place where nothing ahead was certain. And I realised that I have been in that place. As a freelancer, there's always a period of uncertainty. I call it the wilderness. And I've reflected on this before and thought, what do I do in that place? And usually it's a place where I'm reflecting on my work. It's a place where I give myself time to pick up the phone and say, shall we meet for a coffee? What are you up to? This is what I'm thinking about. So that's what I realized I could still do, and I just had an extended version. In fact, in March, when lockdown happened, I was just coming out of that wilderness period and starting to wake up and ready to go. And then I was forced back into a, a, an extended wilderness. So I thought I'll just do what I normally do, which is lie low. Thankfully, money wasn't my biggest concern because I have a home and I'm lucky. My family's, you know, I'm supported that way. So I just thought, yeah, just do what you normally do. Stop, don't worry, don't panic, keep picking up the phone. You can do it on Zoom now to find out how other people are. That was really important for me. How are other people, the people I've been working with? So I spent a period of time doing that. But actually, something happened to me. It's no sooner was I getting into that role, Black Lives Matter came along. And then I wasn't really allowed to stop and be in the wilderness anymore. I felt I had to come out and I had to join forces with the force that was out there. Everybody who wanted to say yeah, inequality is not okay, you know, it's time for, for change. I found myself having conversations with my usual go-to people, and even those people had another agenda, which is Black Lives Matter, what are we going to do? You know, I am your white friend. You know, suddenly people were describing themselves, I am that white privileged person, Jennifer. what are we going to do about this? Or the black person would say, what are we going to do? So there was a very much, a, you know, lots of conversations about Black Lives Matter. But somehow, out of that, what came out was, without me realising it, 
then I started getting emails, Jennifer, would you mentor me? Jennifer, could you work as my creative consultant online? Jennifer, I want to really think about the outdoor arts. And of course, I was already there. And lots of people are thinking of shifting from indoors to outdoors. So can you help me? So there was something about, you know, a force happening without me really even realize it was happening. And suddenly I was on Zoom looking at a site and a bridge and a river and a boat, you know, just outside Birmingham for an idea that someone had and thought, God, this is really doable. So, yeah, something happened there that shifted for me. And yeah, it's so fascinating, isn't it? Such a traumatic year. And I remember speaking to you too, Jennifer, and you being exhausted by that barrage of you being the person that had all the solution we did that so wrong in that time but then the way that those possibilities have opened up for both of you has been really interesting as you suddenly go hang on there might be a market there Mm. also like you Jennifer I've noticed lots of people have got DYCP grants or have other opportunities and ways of focusing in on their practice and I've always done practice dramaturgy so working with artists outside of a production but I've done a lot more lately because people have had this time just to reflect on who they are what they're doing and how they're going to survive this and also how they want to come out of this better fresher you know and packed full of ideas as well so it's been a really lovely time you know as well as not for people to kind of take stock of what their practice is and figure out ways to go forward, obviously in the hope that soon enough they'll be set free and and, and off they'll go and make some brilliant, potentially better work. Developing your own practice grants, did either of you two go for that? I did a while ago, not lately. I can't bear the idea. I know, all all that unpaid work, we'll we'll get to that. Yeah, (laughs) I see these grants out there and I feel almost a bit strange about applying because I'm so aware that there are so many people who are just not as fortunate and are just fighting to survive and stay in this industry. So there's something about me that's just thinking about these things that are brewing and just putting them a bit on hold because work is coming in actually, which is great. I mean, I'm even talking about a tour of my piece this summer. So, you know, how lucky am I? So I'm fascinated as I talk to artists because if we were selling products, we would be right up there going, it's the best, best iPhone, it does this, does this, got this function. But as soon as you start talking about yourself, that feels different somehow and so what I wanted to ask you is I know you've both talked about the values you have of the world but do you value yourself or how does that come into play as you consider how to price your work yeah I do actually I think I'm quite old compared to lots of people in this industry and I feel that (laughs) in a positive and sometimes negative way but I just feel I have got a huge amount of experience and I think that's why people hire me and I have really clear needs to feed my family and I won't devalue myself I just won't anymore I think this is something that you learn I didn't used to be like this that's for sure and there might be sometimes I'll work for a bit less because I really want to and I think oh you know like like, we all do that don't we invest in something but I do that less and less because I have proved to myself dare I say it across the years that I have value and actually it can sometimes be quite significant value and sometimes I can work on a show that will then tour for 15 years and I'll think oh blimey I got three grand for that that's not very much you know and so it goes both ways and I think I've learned to understand my own expertise how long I've been doing this for how much impact I can have on a process or a production and how long a life that can have after I'm directly involved and I just think that's worth money And I've become comfortable with the idea that if you don't, then that's okay. Don't hire me. 
because I've got enough people that will, thankfully, currently. So I feel pretty, it's not that I find these conversations easy, but I have quite a clear bottom line that I won't go below. And, and that's that, really. Yeah. Jennifer, how about yourself? Yeah, definitely. I, I think it's just so important to value myself. Otherwise, I just don't think I can really be my best out there. And I also think it's not always about money. So ideally, I would get paid what I would call properly for a job. But even when I get paid properly, I find that I often go over and above yeah. because that just seems to be the nature of the job. But yes, I do value myself. And I guess I try to make sure that I believe in myself and I don't need to get someone else's permission to say, Jennifer, you're great. I don't need that. I just want to feel honestly that I am doing really great work. Yeah, definitely. There's just something about if I looked at my earnings on an annual basis and we thought about money, then it wouldn't be massive. But when I think about richness of experience, what is clearly coming to me now, actually during lockdown, is what people are asking of me is an endorsement of how much I've given out there and how much experience I've had. And that really makes me feel very, you know, valuable. Mm. I found that I was doing my accounts, you know, late accounts in January. And when I was just looking at one section of it, I had employed 26 people as a freelancer. I had given 26 artists over 12 month period work. And I felt really proud about that. I felt that was really valuable, you know, to, to, to the industry. some organisations. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it might have been one day here and it could have been 10 days here. So it was a mixture. But I saw that as I felt valued. I felt something special looking at that and realised how important my contribution to the industry was. I think it's very, very valuable and I'm needed. So there was something a bit of an aha moment when I looked at that. And both of you have talked a little bit about age in this conversation and whether age brings with it a higher price tag. And I wondered what you felt about that. There's been a lot talked about younger artists in these COVID times. And Gina, for you've talked about feeling lucky that you've got support network around you that you've probably got with some sense of maturity and a longevity of your career. But I wondered in an industry that seems to place that high value on youth, how do we sell the idea that experience should command a price? Lou, do you have a thought about that? Well, it doesn't, it doesn't. You know, there are lots of jobs that tend to be given to younger people, you know, dancing work specifically that, of course, I'm <laughs> not in the running for, never was. I know in Europe, they pay people more the older you are. And I first hit that when I was quite young and I was a bit like, oh, yeah. but actually I get that now. I understand that experience is worth something and that there is something about expertise, or at least I got that before COVID, let's say. And I think quite rightly now there has been a shift in noticing, you know, the situation that young artists find themselves, what is considered tolerable is ridiculous. You know, we've always known that, but now there's more public discourse about that. The lack of value that the arts have inherently in society. I don't know. I think that does need shifting. But I think that I have a certain currency now. I'm aware that that will dwindle potentially quite soon. And that's something I'm mindful of. But yeah, I think right now, my main concern which is a sign of privilege, I guess, is about young people and how the hell we get them through this and how they stay, and artists stay well and stay as artists and how they come through this, you know, with all the opportunities that we had. And I've set up a few of my own bursaries and I was funded by Surf the Wave to do a couple more just because, you know, what the hell else can I do? I think there's a crisis, but it's for young people. It's not for me anyway, currently. I'll get back to you when yeah. it is. And how about you, Jennifer? You said that you've had quite a lot of people emailing you. Is that 
people seeking out that experience from you? Yeah, and I think I suppose the main point is when I think about asking more, it comes with age and experience. But actually, more significantly is that the more experience I get, the more I realize how much I need to invest in my work in order to bring a greater value to the one day that you employ me for. So that, I think, is the experience that I'm asking for more money for a higher daily rate. It's because by the time you've employed me at this certain rate, what I have paid for in order to give a a greater offer to you has been more expensive. And I think that for me is key. And I think one can decide to do that at any age Mm. because I really see the value in investing in me, in having the business coach, in having the project assistant when the project is too big for one person to just go, look, take a cut in your daily rate and just give someone else the job. So you're creating opportunities, but also you're learning a lot. This young person, for example, will come with so much more knowledge on, you know, social media and, um, you know, software, and that will add value to that day rate that I'm charging to that customer. So for me, that's the most important thing. So I find older artists who won't necessarily want to ask for the price I do because I've seen that they haven't spent that investment they haven't spent that money they've gone on a different journey and I just have chosen that one yes I wanted Mm. to ask you very practically both of you how you do charge for your time just for those listeners that might be a bit of a loss of where to start and it's interesting Jennifer that you say there that there are occasions when your day rate actually might not be for just your time but for the package you might be bringing the team that you might be bringing however big or small they might be do you both operate day rates is there other ways that you price your time is you know do you move into a sort of weekly rate or a project rate any tips for anyone listening about how you charge for me it's either my day rate or I tend to sell two hours at a time and I have packages of that so like 8, 12 and 16 hours. What happened to me was I found that I've often got lots of jobs on and if people were asking me for like a day or four hours I end up with 40 jobs on and I'm not necessarily making a decent living but I'm definitely going out of my mind so I realized I had to stop that and had to sort of have minimum chunks of work and I try to change my fee according to who it is that I'm working for so if I'm working with a big ballet company I charge a lot more than I would for an independent artist and as I say I don't have a huge amount of flexibility within those ranges but I have some. Do those go with your gut or have you sort of got a little rate card for yourself? I have a rate card it changes you know I have to say that I'm not very good at this stuff (laughs) I you know I I feel like I, I understand my value and I do have a bottom rate but I'm not great at negotiating I could often negotiate royalties and I don't because I don't know how to um, so I don't want to set myself up as someone who knows what they're doing here. But that is what I do. I have packages of time available. There are eight hours in a working day, but I can't do four Zooms in a working day because I can't go from one person's world to another person's world a minute later. I get quite deeply into these worlds, so I need to recharge afterwards and kind of clear the palette and, and start again. So yeah. the most I can do in a working day is three. I'm not good at it, so it's taken me a long time to figure this out. And I'm sure the work that Gina has been doing with the task force, I wish that that had happened 20 years ago and would, it would have helped me be clearer about this. I'd say that you're undervaluing yourself. I feel Am I quite a tough bargainer? I think you're undervaluing yourself. No, I think that business-like way you've carved up your day and that understanding that you have about you've got to somehow make that day fee, even if you're chopping it up into three. I think that's a really business-like way of doing it. And actually, going back to what Jennifer said right at the beginning of preferring not to maybe speak about money, it's maybe a tool, isn't it, to be able to say, well, this is my rate card, as if the rate card itself is speaking. (laughs) You could kind of depersonalise it in a way. 
Can I just tell a little story about that? Um, so my friend, the filmmaker Becky Edmonds, told me this story once and she told me about an artist. Actually, I don't know who that was. So this is a genius idea of someone I don't know. And what this artist did, he pretended he had an assistant called Jeanette and he created an email for Jeanette. And basically, whenever anybody said to him, you know, how much do you want for this? He said, oh, I'm sorry, I can't talk to you. You need to talk to Jeanette. And then when he spoke through Jeanette's voice, he was really firm and really good at asking for a really good rate. And I was really inspired by that. I think it's brilliant. And I haven't done that. But I do channel Jeanette and I do think, what would Jeanette say now? She would say, no way, I want such and such. But it's like you said at the beginning, Jennifer, about people doing it for you. You know, I've never had that. So I channel Jeanette That's or whoever. a really good tip. Jennifer, how, how do you charge for your time? Do you have any well, tricks like that? Yeah, I mean, I think that one's great. And I have found myself having a project coordinator because it's all project based. And then when they come off the project, there's an email that still exists with their name. And I might reply to a new inquiry with that project coordinator's email. That's not one I really want to publicise because sometimes you just have to do it. But yeah, hey, I've done it now. But again, it's taken a while and it's through coaching sessions and, and investing in me and looking at what this is all about. And that going back to value, the way I've worked it out over the years is looking at what do I need to survive on? What do I need in a year before I even work to pay my mortgage, to have my holidays, to do the things that I think I deserve? Like, what do I deserve? How much does that come to? How much is it if you divide it by 12 months? What does that mean I need to earn per month? And then what else do I need to do to get better at what I'm doing, which is the project coordinator, the courses, add that on, then divide that into 12 months. What does that look like? And then think, well, realistically, just what Lou is saying, you can't work seven days a week because you need the time away to do the job brilliantly so realistically real full-on work is about three days a week so then I take the whole total and it realistically I don't get three days a week of work 52 weeks in the year it's more if I'm lucky 40 weeks in the year so can you see what I'm doing I'm calculating what I need plus what I want to spend on personal professional development dividing that by 40 and then taking that 40 and dividing that by three days a week and looking at what that rate looks like. And each year I do that review. And so when I say this is my fee and someone goes, oh, really? Well, this is what I need if you want the best of me. I start with my values again, what I think I deserve. If I'm going to take myself seriously that I really am an artist working, then I need to be able to you know, not be scrimping and scraping all the time. That's brilliant. It's mm. another amazing tip. And I love the way that you've built in your personal development there as well, but not just as an add-on luxury. No, this is fundamental part of what you need to be you. Yeah. You know, I think that those are genius yeah. and really helpful. So, Jean, I'm going to fire this one at you, and I'm really interested in your opinion on this one from being within the task force. We're reading so much about freelancers and the precariousness of that job choice at the moment. And I just wanted to ask a blunt question, which is, if somebody offered either of you a PAYE position, would you take it? No. <laughs> and I ask this question because sometimes the narrative that's coming across from journalists seems to be we need to turn more freelancers into PAYE and I don't ever feel that's what's needed it feels to me that we choose and I was once freelance as well to be freelance because of the work-life balance 
it offers because of the flexibility in terms of the different jobs, different artists, the challenges, the creativity. There's a lifestyle there that you're opting for, which has its pros and its cons. And there's a lifestyle that comes with a sort of PAYE. I was interested in picking that. Lou, would you have said the same as Jennifer, which was very clear. We know exactly where you are. I have got a reason tell why. Me, but, well, the reason why is what you've just said is the flexibility and the freedom. And I feel as if I can get a, a wider understanding of my industry by being in that world. And there are no limits, there are no barriers, no boundaries. Whereas if I'm paid, I'm working on a specific thing. But having said that, I have done PAYE, say, two days a week. Yeah. I mean, that hasn't happened for a long time. And that was how I used to do it, part PAYE, part freelance, in order to know that there was some sort of stability in terms of paying bills. But as soon as I could, I've moved away from that. And I do think, oh, should I be getting a proper job, <laughs> a proper job paid, you know, knowing you've got a salary coming in each month? And yeah, I'm just not attracted to that. I know. Yes. Interesting. I think it's the same for me. Every now and again, I think, oh, gosh, it would be really nice to have a job. But it's the same thing. Every time I get even near to thinking that, I think, oh, but then I couldn't do this and I couldn't do this. I know, look, that's about to kick off and that's really exciting. So I, I think I'm sort of addicted to this lifestyle. But at the same time, time there is something about loneliness actually as a freelancer and I really would like to belong somewhere I do find when the turnovers like mine I feel like I'm constantly saying goodbye to people therefore I'm constantly saying hello to people but that's not really how it feels I feel like I'm constantly saying goodbye and so truthfully I wouldn't mind a bit of a balance so that it wasn't quite so yeah I didn't have quite so many plates spinning and I did have somewhere to call home I think actually that would be quite a nice thing mm. but in terms of doing that full time no I can't imagine mm. that that would ever fit back into my life mm. but for lots of positive reasons like you say you know the shape of the work and the opportunities and also the childcare and you know all of it really. You know what Lou just said about loneliness is a real big issue for freelancers I think that's the one that you want to get the balance right I find I feel so much better when I'm working with at least someone and I'm always excited about the project that brings together a team rather than something that relies on just me to make this thing amazing that's a really interesting thing to have drawn out from this actually because I think as an organization you you certainly the value you get in employing a freelancer is the rich knowledge, the sector-wide often knowledge that they bring to the job, all of those contacts, ideas from other things. It's just constantly refreshing. But that's so interesting. It's the loneliness and the the home that we need to try and give freelancers and not necessarily the do you want five days a week job which puts a can on all of the creativity that you've actually spent a long time building into your lifestyle and your work that's something for me to take away yeah it, it might sound silly but I worked with Southeast Dance for many years and I got invited to their Christmas parties which was just amazing for me because I'd never had anything like that I used to spend you know six months a year looking forward to it but that is how it is when you have a high turnover of clients but I do think it's an interesting thing for organizations like Greenwich Dance to wonder what else you can yes. offer not just space not just money but some sort of validation some sort of listening some sort of care that actually freelancers really rarely have I think which again slides me straight into my next question which is about those other ways of valuing and actually you've just mentioned some of them being part of a team seems to feel like it's one I wondered whether crediting, you know, you mentioned, I suppose it was more to do with salary, but I can completely understand where you come from when you mentioned seeing a tour fly and then realising that maybe the value that was placed on you in that part has been overlooked a little. What else do you draw on in terms of how you feel valued by someone that might be buying in your skills? For me, 
I don't mean to sound bitter, but there's just no question that I'm airbrushed across time. And if a show tours for a long time, uh, I get airbrushed and even my name falls down the credit list. There is a particular sort of pain of going on an artist's website or a festival or a venue or something other and seeing myself not credited when I should have been. And I can't tell you how often that happens if I had a pound. Twice this week, let's put it that way. And so that is painful and it really demotivates me because I feel like I'm busting my gut over here and I know I'm having impact. That matters to me. That really, really matters to me. And then, yes, it's really wonderful when people remember to invite you to things and they show you the new programme. They just let you know. And I don't need too much, but it's amazing the effect a little bit of care there can have and I've worked on a couple of really big shows where I've stood in the bar afterwards and basically had no one to talk to because the artistic director is busy being adored and I'm just like there paralyzingly alone and it's really uncomfortable and I've learned to say that and to say to people do you know what tell them to come and introduce themselves because I don't know who anyone is here and that's the kind of thing that actually then a, a few times people have really gone out their way to look after me and that means the world to me that kind of thing that's really interesting Gina, for you were nodding a lot there. Yeah, no, I'm echoing what Lou says about just when you've worked so hard and you felt that you've been working as a team and then it's time for that great moment and then you notice that you're just standing there alone. I suppose what I have done is just ensure that that doesn't happen. So I'm getting in there and just saying hi. And again, it's about investment. Sometimes I try to anticipate that that's going to happen. And then I get someone, you know, my project coordinator or whoever, and they're paid and they need to be there. And it's to help me pick up those conversations because really it's conversations that leads from one job to another. So I really can't afford to be missing in a conversation. So the most important thing for me and what makes me feel valued is when I'm invited into a conversation and that the process is transparent. I really hate it when I'm you know, supposed to be working on a project and I feel by the time I come to do a day that so many conversations that has happened that I'm catching up on just because no one could be bothered to pay me to be at those conversations conversations and you know just bring the movement director in here or the choreographer in at this point I remember that being quite frustrating again with time I've tried to ensure that I'm not in these situations anymore but yeah that's really been an issue so that's another really great point I can't remember who said this I heard this phrase it was something to do with gender imbalance and and working with your elbows out you know trying to make bigger space for yourself Mm. and we shouldn't be making our freelancers work that way should we when we are reliant so much on the skills they bring these are all really interesting things to take on board I think so we've been talking about you and your work and the products that you make and so part of that that comes with that is the selling of yourself and I wondered how you felt about being that commodity and what proportion of your time is spent in the selling and have you found any good ways of doing that are you proficient on your website, social media, or is that all just horrendous? Can you afford to pay anyone to do it for you? How, how do you treat the selling of yourself, the marketing of yourself? Lou, how about you? Because you built a whole website and organisation around yourself, which I find fascinating. And I find it hilarious that you say that. <laughs> I think that whilst I have enough work and it sustains itself and I'm very lucky and I'm actually very proud of that, I'm actually woeful at all of this. I don't do anything to 
get work. I really enjoyed hearing Jennifer talk about her business coach, that you know, the, the investment she's given and put into herself, which I don't do. I, I've done a couple of things and I've really seen how valuable they could be, but I just don't really do them. There is something about, well, money and other things I need to spend it on, but also there's something about self-worth, which is crazy because, of course, I spend my entire career encouraging artists to advocate for themselves, look after themselves, invest in themselves. So I need to get a lot better at that and I'm aware of that. And in terms of no, I'm terrible at social media. Like, I'm so terrible. I'm terrible at networking. I run clear every time I think there's a possible conversation that I could have that would be useful. It sends me in the opposite direction, which is pathetic. The one th- interesting thing that w- I realized that when I did my podcast, I felt a bit more comfortable about selling that because it was a thing. It wasn't me. Of course, it was a thing I'd made and I was in it, but I actually just suddenly found myself sending it to people that I would never have sent myself to. So that was useful. Uh, And yes, I have a website and yes, I worked quite hard on that a while ago. It needs attention. And that was a great experience for me, articulating all of that in a more careful way. But really... I think I'm embarrassingly bad at it. And I'm I'm sort of ashamed of that, if I'm honest. <laughs> oh, that's heartbreaking. I feel the opposite. Jennifer, how, how do you feel about that? Are you good at Yeah, I don't think see it as selling myself or selling my work. I don't often think like that. I think I've been lucky that a lot of my work has been word of mouth to the point where I have gone, hang on a minute, do you realise what word of mouth career means? It means that... Anytime someone thinks about something that you could usefully do, they call you. So what do you want to do? I've asked myself. So in terms of getting work, I think the the thing I do most is ensure that every conversation I have, I leave with really hearing where things are at for this person, what their needs are, what they're thinking of doing, what they're growing, their ideas. And I talk about mine. And then I just walk away. I do have this really strong feeling of I let the universe decide, which, you know, not everyone believes in. But I do think there is an energy that I just put out there. I use my energy. I try to create an authentic space. I try to make it as true as possible, those conversations. I try to ensure that it's really clear that I'm just interested in you when we're talking. And then I want to share my ideas. And then I walk away knowing that the conversation I've had makes it possible for me to work with you because of what you're doing, but it may not happen for whatever reason. And then I just trust, basically. So that's how I sell myself, if you'd say that. Yeah, maybe it's a privileged thing as well, that I have been lucky. It's word of mouth often. And then being busy with the investing in myself and also knowing that you got to spend money to make money. So (laughs) that's what I do. Just focus on what I need. What is it I need to do to just make my work stronger? And then I just go, right, okay. so when you you know, when we have a conversation, it will be obvious that I'm the right person Mm. for this job. And if it's not, then it wasn't Mm. right. And then, you know, hey, ho, (laughs) hey, ho. (laughs) I was going to ask both of you how true you found that mantra that you're only as good as your last job. And I think it's. Mm so true that the way you get ahead in this business is by building up a good reputation because it is so much about that following and that word of mouth how does that feel for you Lou does that feel true for you 
Yeah, it's definitely true. You know, all of my work comes from word of mouth or they've seen my name in a program or, or something or other. And actually for me, truthfully, I feel like I'm only as good as my last hour because my job is about figuring out what my job is all of the time for each individual artist. You know, I'm not saying that I'm always stressed and always insecure, but I am always thinking, is this it? Is this right? Am I doing the right thing? And I can regularly, had one yesterday, have a little panic about, I'm not sure I know how to do this job. I don't know what he needs. And the thing is, sometimes it doesn't work happily. It's rare, but if it doesn't work, then that relationship is over for me. But luckily I have enough plates spinning yeah. and enough good relationships in my past. And, and so problems are rare, but sure, it feels true yeah. that there's a temporary nature to it. Goes back to, to what we were saying earlier, doesn't it? A, about the portfolio, the lots of spinning of plates, that flexibility and resilience that gives you, but also that thing that you said right at the beginning Lou of feeling that there's always someone else that can take your place so actually you're always trying to overperform in a way and and actually I think there's a little bit of us in our sector just sprinkled in there as well and how we all want to do the very best sorry I think I was talking about the sector then I don't (laughs) now I sound really arrogant but I don't necessarily think that there is somebody there in the wings waiting to take my place it's just I think we're bred to think that in the arts and that we should be grateful to even be in this industry which is true because it is often a, a source of privilege or luck or something yeah so yeah I agree with that so few jobs lots of people wanting them just thinking of one really good tip I think is I find it really useful when I'm being considered for a job that the person who's you know making that decision has already heard about me from several different other people who they respect and so I think that value in networking which we all cringe about is just so so important and it makes all the difference if someone else can talk about you to that decision maker and endorse the work so I think that's really really crucial. That's a really good point. Mm. So we're almost coming to the end but I've got a couple of very last questions. I wondered as an immediate response to Covid so many organisations started to put their work online for free and I remember at the time that there was a conversation bubbling about whether artists were ever going to be able to rebuild a culture of paying for performance after this time and very quickly I think those very same organisations started to withdraw that free content and think about ways they could monetize it because we realised the situation wasn't the three week lockdown we all perhaps went into it thinking it was and it was here to stay and I wondered whether you have seen in your own work that starting to play out for you or shifting for you or changing for you in any way Jennifer yeah because my work I mean I'm I don't do anything unless I'm paid so I think in fact the lockdown has made me more conscious about ensuring that I'm paid especially as I'm on the dance freelance task force which is all about our rights as freelancers so from my point of view I haven't found myself doing work for free. And anyway, it was something that I would have decided long ago that I wasn't going to do because I value what I do. But I have been aware, you're absolutely right, Melanie, it seemed to be something that is how we started responding to COVID. Lots of free performances. Mm. I remember when I was putting my piece, Black Victorians, on at a festival.org and I was asked the question, do you mind if we film this and then we can put it on YouTube to reach a wider audience, which sounds like a really generous thing to do. And I just said, no. You know, it's like, no, because first of all, that is going to be one camera facing in one direction or two. There's not going to be any big investment in editing it. And my work is just going to be on a flat screen and it's just going to have no substance at all. Plus, it's just come out of work in progress. So I don't even know how it's going to go down live yet, much less filming it and having it forever on YouTube to be generous to the world. So I just said no. So I think that was really important, that shift for me. And I think 
a lot of people came to that conclusion. Yeah, I, I guess I've seen artists come to that conclusion themselves, but I haven't really been involved in those discussions. But I just want to say something about I'm just wary of sounding like somebody, you know, of my age who's got all these boundaries about not working for free. And I think, I mean, this isn't ideal, but when I was younger, I did. And when I coach or when I work with younger people, I try to say to them, how many of these do you think you've got in you? How many times can you afford to do this for free or for cheap? How many times can your uncle lend you 50 quid? How many lifts can you get from your dad or these sorts of things? And I don't think that's right necessarily. I wish that the industry didn't ask that of us. But the thing is, when you're starting out, you do have to prove your track record and maybe there are things that people are prepared to do for free but it's about being mindful of how long for what the point is what it will get them and when they're going to draw the line and say do you know what no I'm doing well I'm doing this properly and this is worth money but I just think it's a bit easy to sit here and say no 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 no, no I don't, don't do, do it, it free don't because, do it. because actually it took me years to get to that point Yes, you're absolutely right, Lou. You're absolutely right. As a young artist, I was doing so much because I didn't even think about it as free. I thought about it as going around and getting as much experience as possible. That's how I saw it. So I didn't put a money thing to it because free doesn't work the same for me. Yeah, it feels like an amazing opportunity. Oh, my God, I get to do this opportunities yeah I went around and grabbed them knowledge base but Mm. I think it's the job of the agencies to try not to ask people to do that you know Mm -hmm. we shouldn't be asking that of people but they can set their own boundaries around that yes I think the digital one we've explored in a couple of podcasts and we won't be over yet I think that one's going to pop up a lot as we all grapple with what does it mean to widen our audience and think about digital in that way but the one bit of the question that I didn't make very clear I think is do you think that the audience expectation of paying for art has changed at all and has that sort of touched your work in any way and I'll refer to my mum again bless her um don't know if she'll listen so it'll be all right because she was happily tuning into the Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals really looking forward to it I think I've mentioned this on a podcast previously and then as soon as I sent her something and said you know this is seven pounds she said I'm not paying for that (laughs) and I thought why not why not you've just been enjoying it you know she doesn't have a lot of money admittedly but it is a choice about where we put our money and yeah so I wonder and I'm still watching those audiences now to see what culture we've started to introduce in terms of whether people pay for art but I I remember artists sort of going how are we ever going to make a living now maybe it's not as bad as that sounds but Gina for being in the freelance task force I wondered whether that had come up at all in any of those conversations you've been having as a group no that hasn't really been one of the main conversations but you just as you're talking and just thinking about your mum and what she said and just thinking about what that might mean sometimes I wonder if even I who have thought about and have done paid to watch things but actually not that much online if I even see the value not even in the artwork that I'm going to see but maybe I'm not paying because I don't see the value in the experience for me because I'm actually in my front room watching it and it's not the same as getting on the tube and going to the theatre and buying that coffee or that drink and then sitting and seeing it live that to me is like I pay for that but if you're going to give me everything online but I'm in the end I'm at home I might just do something else I think that's an incredible point. We've got things like Netflix and iPlayer and it's very hard to compete with those, isn't it? Which aren't free, but almost are once you've subscribed. It feels like you're not paying for them anymore. So I feel that that's quite a good place to stop. I think we've covered a lot of ground. It's so interesting. So thank you both for being with me. And if you'd like to hear more episodes about subjects moving artists of today, search for Talking Moves wherever you get your podcasts. 
Don't forget to subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. And for more information about Lou and Jennifer, head on over to GreenwichDance.org.uk. And do remember that if you know someone you think we should talk to or have a topic you'd like us to talk about, please tweet us at Greenwich Dance. But for now, that's it from us and join us next time for more Talking Moves. Thank you both so very much. <laughs> now I'm wondering if we paid you enough. <laughs> Don't be silly. We have. We said yes and that's it. Once we've said yes, we yes, don't think exactly. about it anymore. It's our responsibility. You know? <laughs>